This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, folks, welcome back once again to a brand new episode of the DLR Cast, the only podcast by and for fans of David Lee Roth. I'm Steve, as always, with my good friend and partner in crime here, the dangerous Darren Paltrowitz. Darren, what's happening? I would normally just shoot back a pleasantry, but man, kind of a somber weekend. Like, so much David Lee Roth news, and we never know when it's going to come. Like, no. we about that last episode, and we're just making fun of, like, there's a VMA's appearance, and we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking about this. In 36 hours, if you're a Dave fan, your world's been thrown all over the place. So, first off, a Mia Culpa. Our last episode, I was the one who said, I don't think he's going to, I don't think these tour dates are going to happen. I mean, after all, it's nearly October. You got to announce these things soon. And yeah. lo and behold, We've got, what, five dates at the House of Blues in Mandalay, uh, Mandalay Bay, right, including New, Year- New Year's Eve. We'll get to that in a second. There was a new track that dropped. And then on top of that, the big, big news is that David Lee Roth announced in a very kind of sort of odd and weird way that the Diamond One is retiring. So much news because in prior episodes, you know, you and I prepping, you know, pulling the curtain back, we're kind of going Okay, what can we talk about? Um, uh, okay, so there's a Sammy Hagar interview where he criticizes Dave. Okay, that's something. Um, uh, we could talk about really liking a different kind of truth. Okay, okay, one more thing, and we got an episode. Then here you have like five episodes of content. Well, well let's 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 recap for a second. I wake up at stupid o'clock Friday morning Central Time, and I'm scrolling through things, and I'm like, what is this low res sunset? Holy shit, it's a new song. Yeah. Which I love. I actually, this is the third song we've heard, right? The fourth, including one of the instrumentals from the comic thing. Yeah. I actually, I love this song. I send that to you. We're like, all right, I'm, we're both thinking the same thing. Well, we're going to talk about it in the next episode. We're going to cro- yes. record this weekend. 12 hours later, it breaks out of Las Vegas. He went on a station there and did a six and a half minute soliloquy where he yeah. literally said, please don't interrupt me. Yes. I'm retiring. So let's dig, let's unpack all that yeah if if we go back a year or so towards the beginning our steve schiltz episode when i was talking to steve we were talking about the a little ain't enough video and it has that little joke in the last scene of the video about his retirement tour in october 2021 and i think we joked a little bit like hey wouldn't that be funny if the whole time he was quiet because he had that up his sleeve and it was (laughs) and you nailed it (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Darren, I'm going to call you Darren the Prognosticator Paltrowitz because you nailed it. Yeah. Uh, but actually, well, look at the, the photos of that. Uh, that's not how we're dressing. Uh, he's not morbidly obese, and those are not the cars. So it's like the only thing that's correct is the date <laughs> and the possibility of a retirement. Well, let's dig into this announcement. First off, Everything, everywhere, from CNN to Yahoo to the Jewish Journal to you yeah. to, of course, naturally, right at the top, very beginning, our good friends at the Van Halen News Desk. Yeah. You had Louder Sound. I mean, every rock place. I mean, this was. I was a little surprised. How this made really big news. So it's announced on. It, it broke on Friday, and he announced it to the last in an interview interviewing in air quotes, by the way, with yeah. the Las Vegas Review Journal. And he it 
yeah. So let's talk about it. First, he announced. He said he's throwing in the towel. He announced. He announced no, his retirement. Throwing in the shoes. Sorry, throwing in the shoes. <laughs> throwing in the shoes. Yes, yes. Throw, I am throwing in the shoes. I'm retiring. Yeah. This is the first and only official announcement. You've got the news. Share it with the world. Uh, and it was, there was a lot of interesting things here. He he really he kind of talks about his mortality. He made reference to Eddie. Yeah. Uh, which sounded very bittersweet. Um, he mentions uh, he mentions his own mortality a bit. He's he's he said um, um, what I'm, there's so much. Oh yeah, he said I'm encouraged and compelled to really come to grips with how short time is, and my time is probably even shorter. Yeah. And there's a a couple of things really a lot of stood out with me here. But first off, he mentions Alex Van Halen a couple of times, and he said Alex and him, uh, his uh, Alex and I have been talking. I can't speak for him just yet, but he knows what I'm about to say. We speak to each other constantly, two or three times a day. We laugh like pirates. And he mentioned the reference to Eddie is the departure of my beloved classmate recently. Dude, that hit me in the gut. I mean, that's that compared to basically there was not a lot of the statements. There was the initial statement online. Right. And then the 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 odd quote at the the VMAs last month. But uh, that was obviously a reference to Eddie. So. Yeah. Now, people have to be careful because the fake news has taken over this. Somebody added in a transcribed paragraph that Alex Van Halen is going to be performing at all five of the shows in Vegas. And that is not true. I don't know who thought to doctor that statement in there, but that one has made the rounds. Uh, I've definitely seen that on Facebook. That's not going to happen. Well, all, all five shows, no. One, maybe. I would be shocked. Okay, well, that's a debate. I'm taking you off course here. So, <laughs> so if we can rewind, if I can interject myself into this whole thing. Uh, the wife and I found a great, great travel package to Vegas. And we maybe that was six months ago or, or so ago, pulling the curtain back. Yeah, sure. We love Vegas. We got married in Vegas. Great city. Okay, th this is so cheap. We have to book it. And we were scheduled to leave December 30th. And then, uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if David Lee Roth, no, that's, oh, cool, KISS residency. Roth announces December 31st. So we extend the trip. We buy in the pre-sale tickets to the first two shows. And then we're going, oh, well, would have been cool to see the others. And then he announces the retirement and go, uh, let's right now buy tickets to the fourth and the fifth. Now, my thinking going into this whole thing is, what if these are his last shows? What if Alex or Mike Anthony come out? Uh, there may not be more shows whether or not he says it. Well, he says they're the last shows. Do you think it's the retirement? Uh, this has been bugging me for a couple of days because the first thing I thought of was, why? Why are you retiring? I mean, the cynic in me went, well, this is a good way to blow out tickets. And sure enough, tickets blew out. But he's only... and. I say this not with a little bit of a grain of salt. He's 67. Mick Jagger's killing it at 103 or whatever. He's 78 or so. I mean, seriously, it's not like Dave's got to shed 35 pounds before he got, was out on the road. The yeah. guy's in phenomenal shape. He's not lugging around the vaunted 60 pounds of equipment that, you know, a costume that Kiss does, right? 
and you saw him in Vegas. He sounded really good. He's got it's. He's not making a to my eyes and ears. He's not embarrassing himself out there. And so my thought was, I wonder if he's got some health issues or something. And because he mentions this is what was really kind of weird. He mentions his uh, doctors and handlers. In the, did you catch that part? His doctors and handlers, and the reason that. If I remember correctly, the reason why he's calling a retirement is in a safe. Yeah, I don't even know what that meant. That means that's like throwing in the shoes. <laughs> Sometimes it's Dave speaking. You have to go. Okay, I don't. I don't understand. He's a lot smarter than us. Or this is a reference to something that I never saw. Yeah, I that I, it, it that perplexed me. The bit about the docs and handlers. One. I never knew he had handlers. And I did know that <laughs> if you listen to the Mark Marin, uh, sorry to cut you off there, the, the Mark Marin, the Joe Rogan, et cetera, when they kind of dwell into the fact that he doesn't have a cell phone, but he has a guy that he reaches out to. And then that guy arranges the transportation. He has a guy for a lot of things. And I don't think a guy is literally just a guy. I think that there's a team Dave. And that kind of reminds me of a, my my friend talked about how he used to see Paul McCartney walking around a lot. And there's like a hidden out of sight security guy that's watching him at every second. So it's like you think that's Paul McCartney just walking down the street with his dogs. And you can just go up to him and go, hey, Paul. And he says, hey, and he talks to you. But there's somebody possibly with a sniper scope <laughs> looking at you. I have to figure it's a similar, similar kind of thing for Diamond Dave. Yeah, I always had the idea that the handlers was just maybe one guy who did his social media and forgot to update the website and, <laughs> but I don't know. So getting back to the docs and handlers, this is where it gets, this is a weird curveball here. This I couldn't figure out because the quote is, and my doctors, my hand, my doctors, my handlers compelled me to really address that. Every time I go on that, I go on stage, I endanger, I endanger the future. What does that mean? There, there were comments in the Rogan interview about smoking and how that took a toll on him and it takes a toll on everyone and how it could kill him. There was Rogan comments also about he had a certain number of shoulder surgeries. Yes. Yeah, that I know. Yeah. So and then I would have to figure anytime this is an assumption here, anytime you do a big live nation kind of tour. There is this, there are, is, are, whatever it is, a series of physicals and doctors related things for injuries because they have to make sure they're not buying a damaged bill. Oh, for, yeah, for insurance purposes. Yeah. Yeah. So his team of doctors could just be <laughs> like any person of that age. You know, you're, yeah, doctor a lot more in your 60s than you do in your 20s. Well, the cigarette thing was interesting because he did say in this interview, I might have thought the Marlboro Man would have gotten me. <laughs> I don't I think that's just hyperbole. In other words, I've always thought that Dave is the poster child for, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. But I think that's a calculated image. In other words, you wouldn't be that shredded if you were always high, you know, you if you were staying up until 6 a.m. every single day, 
you wouldn't be exercising and climbing mountains and reading boat magazines because we've learned he loves his boat magazines. Yes, that's that. Yes, that is true. <laughs> and of course, it wouldn't be any sort of Dave interview where it didn't just take a couple side roads until into some past story. Uh, the bit about the you know the Grand Slam breakfast and the cop walking in at the diner or whatever and and uh, telling some story from the old days and. I had no idea that he was a size 29 and that he was a size 26. He found some pants upstairs, apparently. I mean, Dave non sequitur Roth, really. You know, we'll just yeah. you know, we'll just take a turn down this road here for a second. Why the hell not? He mentions, which was I thought was really weird. He calls this current band the final iteration of Van Halen. No. <laughs> oh. And uh, the day that this show went on sale. Somebody reached out to Al Estrada, who's in the lead guitar role, and said, who's in the backing band? And it's a different drummer than the prior Vegas residency that's uh, missing the second guitarist who's been playing in Rat. And it didn't mention Danny Wagner, who's on keyboards. So it's also a scaled down band with different members as well. Well, th this is... This is the weird thing in this interview. He mentions it's the final... This band's the final iteration of Van Halen. But then he goes, I've got a band that is doing what Al and I used to call a block. That means 75 rehearsals for one show. And then he says, we are bringing it in classic VH style. Alex and I are the only version. That was his message. There is no other variation. Dude, you just said it's the final iteration of Van Halen. He said, there is no torch being passed. There is no other side to this coin. This is classic in-your-face Van Halen. <sighs> so Maybe... Hagar and Michael Anthony touring is nothing about a torch being passed. And <laughs> Kang being on the road is not a torch being passed. Got it. Okay. So I, I, the only, I didn't see any, you just reminded me, I didn't see if there was any sort of social media uh, tributes or anything or messages from, from Mike or Sam, but Wolfgang put yeah. a great picture of him and Dave from, um, from one of the tours shaking hands and yeah. he just had a nice little note on there, which I thought was super cool. And if this is the end, like Dave said, it's been an amazing run, a great run. Just as always, there's some elements of mystery here. And like I said earlier, my first question is why? Why now? Yeah, why now? It could. Another theory I have is I was really watching the ticket sales like a hawk during the pre-sale. These days, pre-sales are not so prestigious. It used to be, you know, you, to get the code, you have to listen to the radio station at this time. And nowadays, you just Google pre-sale code blank, and there'll be the, like, <laughs> the, the city bank credit card one, and then there'll be the Live Nation and the band one. There's four different ways to skin that cat. So it's kind of like right. if you don't get the pre-sale, you probably didn't really want to go that bad. So I was looking at it, and... The first four shows, you know, right before the retirement announcement, it was like 60% unsold. And the, the last show, totally open as well. The second that the retirement was announced, that last show really either went clean or they pulled the tickets. And then I looked again today, and it's like the scalpers had a field day with the tickets. Like, you can buy stuff. But the venue also changed the prices on the tickets that that were unsold, and they released more of the platinum stuff. Those so, packages look pretty expensive. The Panama package, this yeah. package, 
the atomic punk package that i don't even know the names the rest well, of the names besides panama package i saw it's it it's relative because as for new york standards you go yeah that makes sense uh, it comes with a month's rent or something like that <laughs> <laughs> you know, some, some of them come with a commemorative laminate and drinks and food credits and when you do it that way you think about it oh you know what um Okay, we get to the venue early and now we eat and we drink and it includes the show, the old Vegas style dinner in the show. So I get that. But there's so many unanswered questions as a result of this besides the retirement. Like, so are we still not going to get this final album that was done 10 years ago? Put it, put, yeah, put a pin in that for a second. We're going to get in that for a second because the other question, this whole thing that you just reminded me of part of the strangeness of this thing is that it was an interview with the Las Vegas review journal, no knock on them at all. And yeah. it's, it's some pre publicity and it's basis form before the shows, but it almost like, not that he didn't plan this, but it just seems so sudden and kind of not off the cuff, but off the cuff. Do you know what I mean? I mean, he could have gone on any podcast for goodness sakes. Instead, what was probably a regular old uh, normal interview turned into him uh, taking no questions, saying, please don't interrupt me and, and yes. doing this for six minutes. Right. They've used that publication to break announcements before. It's one of the trusted local newspapers there in Vegas. I guess it's an old world kind of thing. And Dave loves Vegas. And it, the first time when he was announcing this residency, they said, you know, why Vegas? They talked about it being the city of the future and it's where all the trends are starting. And we know that Dave did his residency in 94, which bled into 95. But we still can't find video of that. But I'm dying. <laughs> to see that. The, the Mambo I, Slammers. The Mambo Slammers. The performance on Jay Leno, you can still find buried pretty deep into YouTube. But... Man, I, I he has some love for Vegas, and it's not clear why, because that MTV VMAs thing, he also has love for Utah, and that Joe Rogan thing, he also has love for Texas. <laughs> I think he loves a lot of places. Yeah, it's uh, the whole thing is just fascinating to me. A lot of unanswered questions uh, that I think we asked here. So this is a good segue to music, because mm -hmm. before this announcement, I very quickly fell in love with the new song. What do we always say every time? Hey, next time we talk, who knows? There might be another date. There could be a track dropping an hour after we finish this podcast. Sure enough, on Friday, another song from the John Five Sessions, even though it's never actually said that because this just comes out quietly. There's no announcement. It just shows up everywhere, right? Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, everything. Yeah. So we all know that this is... And John, I haven't seen a social media post on him but I don't think he's posted about it. He's on Instagram all the time. So it's just assumed. I'm a, it, it, this is the, from the John's five sessions, obviously. But I love this song, Low Res Sunset. Yeah. I love the vibe of this thing. It reminds me of a couple of different things that I just, it sounds, it sounds like Dave and it sounds immediately familiar, but in a cool, not derivative way. Yeah. We do know that these are from the John five sessions because of the Chris Jericho interview and a few of those were John right. named somewhere over the rainbow bar and grill. And 
I, I guess, is that modus tollens, that if A implies B, B implies C, then A implies C? Was that what I learned in 10th grade? Well, <laughs> these sound like those same songs. I remember reading somewhere that Greg Bissonette played on. Yes. Yup. So unless and, there's a second album <laughs> that was acoustic oriented. Yeah, it's Bissonette on drums and John Five on all the guitars, including bass guitar. And I think Brett Tuggle played. And Tuggle, yes, Tuggle, you're right, yeah. I Tuggle, I would argue, is the most important person in the history of David Lee Roth that no one ever talks about. (laughs) That dude does not play guitar. (laughs) I don't know if he doesn't play guitar. I was going to say, he's the most important person in David Lee Roth who does not play guitar. That that nobody talks about. Right, for sure. He was there. Uh, for the first three full-length albums. He came in and out a few times. He wrote Just Like Paradise. I mean, without Tuggle, where would things be? Yet, Tuggle's always had a lot of credits. Uh, hasn't he been with Fleetwood Mac? And who else is Lin- he? Lin- oh, Lindsey Buckingham. When were we talking, he was with, I think I had Lindsey Buckingham and Lindsey Buckingham's touring band. Yeah, he's been uh, around. I think he might have been with the Eagles. And he might have been with Whitesnake. There's like two other guys that I confuse him with. Timothy Drury, who is with uh, the Eagles and Whitesnake. <laughs> like the the quiet in the back keyboard player. He, you know, is more talented than the people in the front of the stage. But <laughs> Brett Tuggle is one of those. And and I will not rest until we have him on this podcast. Um yeah, he must. He's. I'm sure he's a great interview. I was just thinking. I have listened to Low Res Sunset in three days more than I did the first three days of the other two songs. Of which there's Sunset Bar and Grill, and now I'm spacing on the title of the second one. But Giddy Up, of course. Uh, but I really like this song. It's yeah. kind of perfect. It should have come out in the summertime. It's got that sort of vibe. It's got this slinky sort of cool vibe but the harmonies are great it's got a, a couple changes in the chorus you don't really hear it's just it's almost like two songs within a song and it uh, this really has got me interested in hearing the rest of the rest of these uh, the rest of the tunes from those sessions i mean can we just get this in one package please with a cool gatefold cd and some really cool fold, fold photos please and a gatefold package well, here's a huge head scratcher. The the U uh, the VMA appearance was what two weeks ago, two three weeks ago. Sure. The question that triggered the whole Vegas thing was: So, Dave, any new music coming out? And he didn't answer that. He just talks about Vegas, right? And he could have answered it. He has technically new music that no one's heard. It's yeah. not new. It's not new by the calendar, but it's new for us fans and new, new for new for the marketplace. <laughs> yeah. so, so I just don't know anything. I think none of us know anything about what's going to happen. We don't know. Is are these shows going to be identical to the shows that were a year and change ago? Are we going to get special guests? You know, is every is it going to be like fish where? When they do a residency, every show has its own theme. And, hey, who's going to walk out tonight? And, wow, here's a medley of blank, and here's costumes, and here's the trampoline. Or is it the same exact show? I don't think think you'll see that. And I think you run the risk of having a very – of a set list that's close to what you saw previously. Because there's easily seven or eight Van Halen songs – 
plus California girls, right? Plus yeah. he does just a just a gigolo. Uh, so there's you've got over half a set list that is not going to change. I agree with that one. It's a wonder if he. As more time goes on, you see more artists that are older. They figure out more tricks so that they can take a breath. For example, they call an intermission mid-show, or the guitarist takes a solo, and the bass player takes a solo, and the drummer takes a solo. And how long How long was the show that you saw when he did his first residency? Somewhere between 90 and 120, but clearly was not uh 90 to 120 of music per se they they're your typical like talking at the crowd anecdotes stories picking up a harmonica and breathing into it and talking about that and quote unquote improving right there was that kind of stuff i've been Right before this this retirement, I was down a wormhole watching some live videos, and I was watching this incredible 1999 show from Scottsdale, Arizona. It's 95% of the time, the camera's where it needs to be, and it's great. I'm going to say if he was on stage 90 minutes, about 20 minutes of it were pickup lines to imaginary girls in the front two rows. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I hear you. Well, in a perfect world, in our our perfect set list, he would obviously have more solo stuff. And so I was thrilled just to get a completely odd, B, obscure B-side in Big Train from the first residency. Yeah. I mean, if he pulls out something else, pulls out She's My Machine or anything but No Big Ting, you knew I was going to go there, Darren, didn't you? I would, uh, or, or a little ain't enough, please play the title track, right? Do, uh, how about a slinky, really cool version with two guitar players in the band of Ladies Night in Buffalo? Lower the house lights and just get a smoky, yes. do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't expect him to get super creative with the set list because it's still going to be a gig, is a gig, is a gig after all, right? I don't, he's not going to be the, I don't think you're going to pull out all stops in that two hour and 20 minute kiss extravaganza sort of thing. Right. right. I'd love to see it, but I don't think he can do it and it's not going to happen, but I'd love to see him get really creative with the set list. But the last time the Vegas shows that we saw no hot for teacher, no Yankee Rose. So there were some real, huh? Kind of missing songs from that set list going crazy. You, I would say that was a hit, you know, that was a proper oh, yeah. video and single. It wasn't a hit like just like Paradise was, per se. It wasn't, it was more of a hit than the Skyscraper title track, which had a video. But I, I wonder what percentage of the audience that goes to this show knows Big Train and is psyched to see Big Train. Oh, barely one and a half percent, I bet. Yeah. I mean, nobody bought that record. I don't, I think that thing barely did 100,000 copies. Yeah, that sounds about right. But take a step back and you say Yankee Rose. What percentage of the crowd do you think would be all about Yankee Rose? Oh, a pretty a higher percentage, I think. I mean, well, in Vegas, let's put it this way. Vegas being Vegas, you got a bunch of people who know David Lee Roth and they want to hear Jump and Van Halen songs. Yeah. I, but as far as Roth and Van Halen fans who 
no, both. Yeah, I think it, it depends. I think it depends on the in the marketplace. There, I think you you with any casino show, you run the risk of a bunch of people going there because they are there that night to gamble and they want to show them this is a great time. And honey, you remember he remember Jump <laughs> yeah. Panama, right? Yeah, I that's that's one of the few things I don't love about Vegas. To me, Vegas is the best of the best with restaurants. There's certain things that Vegas does better than anywhere else in the world. Things look great, like Los Angeles. Whether or not there's any substance to them, things look spectacular in Vegas. They're not afraid to spend money. The sound system is always going to be great at the clubs. Things like that. But when it comes to set lists, I would not gamble on seeing a different show from, from two years ago. But I would gamble about special guests i would gamble on a sheehan appearance a bissonette appearance a few folks like that but coming out for one song and then get out i'd be i'm i don't see it i'll tell you i don't dave's not a guy to share the stage nobody just comes up and and jams yeah i mean you know at any given show especially in a major market there's probably some musicians that he probably knows a guitar players all right he's in new york I mean, there could be somebody who's played with. I mean, Lord knows he could add Vi up a hundred times the last few years. It's, it's for thirty years. It's never happened. But if this is the the legacy cementing kind of show, that's why I think it might be different. Because if this is he wants to go out with a bang, theoretically, this is where it happens. This is the one time Alex performs live. So that was one of the reasons why I got the tickets before I realized it was the retirement. Like we've had, you know, I know this is the DLR cast, not the Norm McDonald cast. But when Norm McDonald passed, that one hit me hard because one of my favorite comics ever. But he hid the fact that he was sick for nine, ten years. That blew me away. I had no idea. Eddie hid it for years that he was sick. So I heard about this and I was recently listening to some DLR interviews. This was said in at least one of the interviews around a little ain't enough. He said that when he goes away, he goes away. He changes his haircut. You can't find him. And he goes I, to Japan. Yeah. We, we he were wears an Iron Man mask in public. <laughs> we were talking about on the, the episode about the dog breeding thing that the guy was shocked to see him because he had a goatee you know yeah. you never think like you just think of him as being a clean shaven kind of guy so you'd never look at somebody twice and go i think that's roth so i just thought that the way that he would go out would be hmm, i disappear and that these would be the last shows in that sense there would have been vibes in the air of, you know what uh he didn't pack the kiss shows the last run of vegas dates were not sold out let's quietly go away yeah, I that's so in other words, you would never you didn't expect any sort of like announcement like this because I certainly didn't. If I had to guess, I would have been like, yeah, you know, he never did tour again after those shows in 2021. Never went out again, you know, yeah. because who the hell knows? He's painting or he's whatever the hell he's doing. Growing old, great, somewhat gracefully. The tour page was taken off of his website without any fanfare. Right. I, my theory was at the fourth or the fifth show, he's going to say something like. This is going to be our last show for a while. And then you were going to, and then he was going to say something, some anecdote about hot dogs backstage with Van Halen in 1981. And you, you'd be like, what? <laughs> he, he kind of does his big announcements with 
old old timey anecdotes, which he did in this announcement. The whole Denny's thing. He spent longer talking about Denny's. Yes, that out. story that was like $125 and the cop came in. And I'm like, wait a minute, this, is the cop from Alabama? Did you hear that? I mean, what in the world was that? He's talking about having no money, but then they would go to Denny's and spend that same $125 on the meals. You're like, I thought you had no money. <laughs> I think this is all part of why he is our all-time favorite or, or among our all-time favorites and it's so interesting to me when you think about it he's doing it the exact opposite that kiss is doing it because kiss did uh, its first farewell in the early 2000s and then this current farewell tour which does not end now granted covid pushed it back per se but it's this big fanfare of we're going away we're going away we're going away it's like just go away yeah <laughs> and then dave it's got- gonna it's going to have to end. Well, I know they're doing a Vegas residency, right? So, I mean, the, the end of the road isn't real. The end it's the end of the road before we get to Vegas to do uh, a bit of a res- residency twice a year, right? I may or may not be seeing one of those shows that possibly coincided with our pre-existing trip. How is it I book a trip and Kiss and Roth both announced shows? That- Dude, you should go play the Powerball, man. You've got a streak of luck there. Yeah. I can't wait to it's gonna I'm I'm so looking forward to us talking about that and 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 what Dave what Dave's gonna bring out for this thing. Who or what Dave is gonna bring out for this thing? Oh, I'm saying here, there's no who. <laughs> Nobody else is coming out on that stage, man. <laughs> I Who's think me wrong. I think that people have to come out because the way he got so nostalgic about his past and wanting to document the right things. And then meanwhile, all these recent comments from Billy Sheehan saying, yeah, we're ready to do this. That's why I think that this is going to happen, that this is that uh, for was it about four years ago? The Lucky Strike L.A. Right. That was supposed to happen. I think this is that. I I just don't see it happening. I, 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 I prove me wrong. I hope I'm wrong. And uh, that's why he wasn't playing Yankee Rose because he was saving for that. Now, that would be a little too generous and nice. But uh, there's so many people from his past he could bring up. And I think if he just brings up one or two people, that would get a lot of people talking. Oh, absolutely. would. I mean, and certainly top on the list for everybody who wants to see if you're a Dave fan is is Steve Vai and Billy Sheehan or any combination thereof. Right. Of the Edom and Smile Band. So. This and that. Uh, I don't think a lot of people are talking about Tuggle, but we're talking about Tuggle. Right, right. Uh, there, there's other folks as well. Um, I mean, I don't think that people are going to, like, bring out James Lomenzo. I don't think that no. that's happening. <laughs> but I'll, I'll even take a Matt Bissonette appearance because, hey, he was all over the skyscraper touring and he co-wrote Knucklebones. Uh, there's, there's people he could bring out from that past. John Five, of course, being one of them. I think the crowd would know who John Five is, but may not realize that he was in Dave's band. Right, right. Interesting points. Well, we've got, it's just so cracks me up how we all of a sudden we have so many big and great things to talk about. But we also have an interview. We we decided that you folks were just worthy enough of a Robbie Neville interview. <laughs> and, and here it is. Robbie 
is one of those people who's been so successful in the music industry for decades now, yet kind of can live peacefully and quietly. And you know his music, especially if you're a Dave fan, but you know his music. If you've ever seen the TMZ TV show, he co-wrote that theme coming in and out of the commercials, Hannah Montana and High School Musical, a lot of Disney stuff was his bread and butter for a while. But hey, he co-wrote two songs on A Little Ain't Enough, including the title track. And I got him to explain the process of writing that song. And it's not as simple as me and Dave were in a room and blank, blank, blank. It's uh, it's a little more direct. <laughs> I, I it, It's a bit of a head scratcher to me because the, the way he tells the story, and I fully believe Robbie, we've message since this interview he said after co-writing a song uh with dave he had an idea for a little ain't enough and the original uh title of it was living in luxury and he gave it to dave didn't hear anything for a while and then he found out that the song was being cut and he's like uh, cut meaning recorded it's right like, oh and like dave made some tweaks to it but when you think about it how many other songs did that happen with? Could have could have been more than more than a few. Who knows? I mean, the, how this how the songs get written and sometimes how the songwriting credits are divvied up can be a much maligned, very interesting, and not always an easy process. But one thing that came up without spoiling too much because he's such a nice guy is he's talking about Bob Ezrin and. How much do you know about how Bob Ezrin was supposed to produce A Little Ain't Enough? Do you know you've just heard that or that? No, and I love Bob Ezrin. I don't think I knew that. So he kind of confirmed that. And I've read that, that there's a, a version of She's My Machine produced by Bob Ezrin. I know Get that out. My Machine is not on A Little Ain't Enough per se, but what I've heard from people, including Robbie, was Bob Ezrin was supposed to do a little ain't enough. And then for whatever reason, Bob Rock did it instead. I don't know if there was, you know, a, a gap in paperwork and he got the wrong Bob in the first place. Well, at that time, Bob Rock was producer du jour, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, we're talking 92, was it? I mean, Ezrin did Destroyer. He Early 90s, if I recall, he wasn't really doing too much before he... In the 2000s, since he's got, he's done a couple records with Alice. He did, he he's done every, I think every deep, uh, not every, at least the last three or four Deep Purple records with Steve Moore. So he's certainly been active, and I know he, he's got a studio and a bunch of different things. So, uh, but it, that's an odd pairing. Maybe it's not that odd, odd of a pairing, but that would have been interesting because Ezrin co-writes a lot of songs in his produ in his productions. Yeah, but the. Ultimately, that's the opposite of Bob Rock, because Bob Rock was, the, as you said, at the time he was coming off of the Motley Crue album and going into the Metallica album. So he was the guy at the moment, whereas Bob Rock was the classic guy of yesteryear. Bob Ezrin. Yeah. Bob Ezrin, yes. Part of my, uh, my mistake right there. I know that Bob Ezrin did an album in the mid-2000s for this band called Instruction that was on Geffen for record i think it's the kind of thing where if you really want bob ezrin to do the album he'll do it but he's not starving for work Sim similar deal with bob rock these days right right on well this is going to be a great interview 
as always. I, I, I hope so. But uh, yeah, Robbie's a solo artist. He started off as one. He's got another album in the works. And I have this. So I have that first solo album with Say La Vie. That was that is a banging track from sometime in the 80s, late 80s, 1986, I think. And I think he had a hit with that. I think that was um, a Hot 100 hit, Billboard Hot 100 hit. I love that song. I have that on cassette somewhere here. Boy, if that doesn't age me, Jesus. But <laughs> I have it. It's good. Dominoes, yeah. that was the other song. I'm going to go dig that out. And what's it to you? There was three great songs on that now that I think of it. Dominoes was great. Yeah, he had some... He had. I would have loved to have... I remember thinking at the time because that his record came out in 86. And I was like, oh, wow. He wrote with Dave. And then I was... He never... I don't think he ever wrote with him again. At least didn't get recorded. And I was... And I just remember he's got some soul chops. The guy... Uh, yeah. And I... That... I would have loved to have heard more from those two writing together. Yeah, but this uh, has opened up a, a rabbit hole of sorts. So we will be speaking with other people from the Little Ain't Enough era in the very new future for this podcast. And uh, after we've spoken with every collaborator with, from that, I guess it'll be on to the Your Filthy Little Mouth era. <laughs> and then there's the DLR Band era and the Diamond Dave era. So what I'm getting at is there's Still plenty of people to tell the stories that haven't been told. Absolutely. So, well, on that note, before we get out of here, we should mention uh, a week from tonight, Dave will be 67 years old, October 10th. So happy birthday, Diamond One. And here's to the great slate of shows in Vegas. And uh, if any of you still are listening to this and will be in Vegas, uh, please find me. Please find me. You don't have to buy me a drink. Just just find me. You're, you're on. They can find you on Twitter, right? Yeah, they can find me at Paltrowitz. I'm always out there. Say hello to me and the wife and, you know, don't start a chant or anything. Like, I don't want to get mobbed, but... No, no. Hey, that's the guy from the DLR cast. Yeah, just mobbed <laughs> just come up to Just come up to Darren and just say two words, Sonrisa Salvaje. Yeah, yeah. And then you'll be, then you guys will be, you'll be fast friends. Fast friends, and... Actually, the last thing I'll say about this is the December 31st show, which is the first show of the run. You know, my wife and I were talking about like, oh, cool. So, like, do you think it's going to be a champagne toast? Like, is it? No, the show's going to be over like an hour and a half before midnight. Yeah, I can't imagine Dave up there doing old Lang Syne, right? I mean, oh, I could only hope, but. No, we're we're gonna have to look for plans after the show. How many New Year's Eve gigs do you go to where the person's not on stage at midnight? Never. I the one time I saw I saw a cheap trick a couple of years ago on New Year's Eve here in Minnesota, and yeah, they did Old Lang Syne. They played through midnight. It was I, I can't remember what song. Uh, right before the clock struck midnight, right they were playing, but they went out of that song. Although God, you know, if the clock strikes ten, that would have been yeah. per right. Uh, and then they, they, the roadie signaled them, and they, you know, they knew what time it was obviously, and they, we all sang, and it was like, and they'd been, they do a New Year's Eve show just about every year, yeah, uh, global barring a global pandemic, but yeah, so they, I've always wanted to see them, and seeing one of my favorite bands, I would love to see Dave New Year's Eve, even if it meant I was sitting at a bar, forty five minutes after the show ended, toasting the actual turn of the new year, <laughs> not in front of Dave on stage. Yeah. I'm, 
curious to see which celebrities are going to be in the crowd for this show as well, because like oh, we'll yeah. a Juliet Lewis in the crowd. Yeah. Celebrity spotting with Darren. I want to hear about it. Yeah. I mean, the last time I only got Jordan Ziff from Rat. Uh, much respect and love to Jordan Ziff, of course. But uh, we can do better on this. <laughs> but, there you uh, go. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for tolerating and more to come very soon. Right on time there. How's it going there? Good. How are you? Great. The, the first thing I need to know is, are you Robert, Rob, Bob, Robbie? What's your preference there? Uh, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robbie, I do appreciate you taking the time. You're one of those people where I've been listening to your music for decades, but I didn't necessarily know it was your music. Is that something that you mind or is that just... You know, the life and times of somebody who's had a publishing deal more of their life than not. No, I mean, I initially when I was, you know, when I was a kid, I kind of had this sort of path in my mind of becoming an artist first. And, you know, how sometimes best laid plans. Right. And uh, over the years, just it, it just it, when you're trying to get in the industry, or at least I remember when I was, it was sort of like I had the plan. But at the same time, I'm also a believer in, you know, roads show themselves. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, my path's showed itself where someone started showing me about you can also get songs on other people and for someone like me it was it was it made it fun to more fun in a lot of ways because I like a lot of different styles but obviously as an artist you know you tend to sort of kind of favor one as a singer I probably do a little bit more like R&B and pop but um but I love I mean I grew up on every it literally a very to me that was normal you know just growing up with like everything loving from everything from the Beatles to Zeppelin to Black Sabbath to the Stones to Earth Wind and Fire to Stevie Wonder to it was all great James Taylor just gone on Steely Ann Eagles and literally could go on forever and still a fan of a lot of you know today's stuff well as well um and so, but along the way I was sort of shown the way you can write songs for other people and that opened some doors which eventually led to my record deal mm-hmm and I never really stopped writing for other people. Maybe, maybe at f- when I was first put out my first record, because there was, you know, kind of took up all my time. Uh, but after that, you know, I just I've always sort of written and produced for other people. So I understand if someone doesn't know that I wrote that song, but it's it's kind of fun when someone does find out. They're like, wow! And that's a perfect example with it. Speaking, I'm going probably going ahead of you, but uh, the David Lee Roth mm-hmm. stuff which is really fun because I do love rock and I grew up on a lot of rock, even though my voice doesn't sound that way. And even though that's not what I did as an artist, I still loved it. And it was, uh, you know, it's always fun working with cats like him. You know, he was, he's a rock star. I definitely have more questions about that, but in your case, you answered something, which I was going to ask when you said, well, I was always writing for other artists, except when I was busy with my first album, per se. I find that there's kind of two schools of people who I call co-writers, if that's an acceptable term. And one of them is, uh, I got my cuts. I'm kicking back. I'm not doing anything ever again. And then the other stuff, wait, I'm a songwriter. This is my craft. I write songs. So are you still super, super active? Because the Disney world, the R&B and pop worlds, you... It looks like your credits never stopped, per se, but there's some people you'll find who they wrote their 300 songs and the publisher is just still shopping them 20 years later. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've known certain artists that seem like it's, at a certain point, they sort of left, they kind of looked at it as, this is what I grew up on and today's music, I just don't understand. I, I know, I know, you know, friends of mine and, and people that I'm huge fans of as well over the years, but 
I've always been, I always try to find something that I like about whatever it is. So I'm always been a radio flipper in the car. And still, when I go in the car, I'm listening to everything and I'm constantly flipping around. But I, I'm a fan of today's, you know, particularly a lot of the productions are amazing these days. There's a lot of great stuff. So yeah, I never, I never stopped doing it. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's fun. I love I love the process. You know, there's certain, I've gotten to a point now where I don't chase every carrot is what I call it, which is that sort of when you're a songwriter, mm -hmm. it tends to be a sort of hired gun mentality, which is that, oh, this project is looking for a thing and we need to do this and, or some artists just signed a deal with this. And there's a lot of those that you, over the years, you can kind of get into this habit as a songwriter of just sort of chase, chasing all of them, you know, and, and I've gotten to a point now where I'm, I'm more particular and probably over the last 10 to 15 years, made more of a living uh, working in TV and film and, and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. There's just been more things. You kind of just sort of take what, you know, what, what comes your way. But at this point, I'm also just sort of trying to find stuff that I really have fun with. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I had done a album that was in a style that was, uh, it was, I'm not sure exactly what to call it, but it was a song called I See Red that, that actually became this huge viral thing, which a lot of people are just, I can't believe you wrote that. And I just sort of go, well, I, I don't, I never looked at music as this sort of one thing. And so when you're a songwriter, right. it's really fun, particularly when you get those projects that let you kind of like, you know, like all of a sudden you're pulling out of the slide and, you know, you get to get, do that. And a lot of people just like, I didn't know you did that. It's just like, well, I never, I don't know, uh, today's, the, the songwriters that I meet today, a lot of them sort of come from a, a certain thing that they do and, and it's great and they're amazing at it. And I try to learn from everybody I work with and, you know, always, always grow. That's the key thing is that you're always growing, always trying to learn something and listen to the stuff. I mean, I understand, I guess, if some people listen and they kind of go, that's, I don't like it. Or, I mean, that's a subjective, you know, it's a personal choice. I, I still do like a lot of it. And some of it, I gravitate more than others, but it's it's the fun part you know it's it's be, i love things that are done well you know but it doesn't matter what style and i love a challenge too if someone comes in and says we needed this for that or it's got to be some classical this or that or for some trailer that it's just kind of a fun challenge you know because there's a part of you kind of going i know i could do this you know? <laughs> well the key is you're a musician you're a songwriter and that's what you do it's not one of these uh yeah, I'll send the hook to that person and we'll see what happens. You're actually in the room with the people. And most people don't realize that this song was made over a one to four day period. You did it. It's done. You moved on to the next one. So it might be something that they live with for the rest of their lives and listen to all the time. But you, it's it was a gig. You did it. You moved on and you did plenty more that month or that year, really. You're not wrong. <laughs> It's just, it's the nature of the beast, you know? I mean, I remember yeah. when when I used to be gone, you know, promoting and doing a lot of that stuff, I was putting out my own records. You know, there is that part, there's something really fun about that. Now, one thing you said, I don't know if it's always the case, even with David, I, again, I'm jumping ahead, I guess, but um, you're not always in the room. That's not always the case. Sometimes someone will give you a thing or you'll come up with a start and you'll bring it in, like with David, I'm sure at some point you'll, I think you do a podcast, just about Dave or something, or I think. I yeah, me, me and Steve Roth, no relation to David Lee Roth, okay. <laughs> have a podcast that it's it's not the most uh, geeky podcast about David Lee Roth, but it comes pretty close. And 
We love the A Little Ain't Enough album, and I know you have two cuts on there. So I have a lot of questions about that, if you'll entertain those those questions, of course, per se. That's, I mean, right when you wrote, when you talk about that album, I go, yeah, that was really, really fun. So I, I look forward to it. Yeah. It, it definitely stands out in your discography because if I look at the major artists, Babyface and Earth, Wind and & Fire and Jessica Simpson and David Lee Roth and you go, okay, there's a story here. But you mentioned you're not always in the room with people. That's something that I've heard about a lot of times that yes, a song is started and then somebody hears it in their publisher's office or their label's office and they go, would you like to finish it? Or what do you think of that? Are your two songs, now? it's two songs I believe on A Little Ain't Enough that's correct. Okay. Are both of those things that were pre-written and found his way to him or one of them was? No, it, 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 it started with a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Keith Olson. Uh, oh, yeah. Amazing rock producer. Rick Springfield. Lots of great records. We lost him a year ago. God, so many. It's, the discography just goes forever. He was an amazing cat. And uh, he had introduced me to David. I'm pretty sure that's how I was trying to think of it yesterday when, you, when I saw your email. Uh, I think he had introduced us and the first time we got together, I went to David's house and it was, you know, it's a blast because I grew up listening to Van Halen too. I remember being in club bands, you know, cover bands when they were first starting to really, really take off. And sure. it was, you know, I mean, there's like, that's, that's, it was a certain kind of rock star thing that it's, it's not the same today. It doesn't feel the same, but, but maybe it's also a perspective of it. I don't know, but uh, um, so we got together and he had had the first song was shoot it. Yes. That was one of the songs on the record. And he had had shoot it. And I, God, it's a little bit gray in my memory, so I may get this wrong. But I know, I know he had the track. I didn't have anything to do with the, the music. He had the track, and I think he had some melodic ideas. Uh, but he sort of said, why, you know, why don't you take this, and, you know, mess around with it, and come back and you know see what happens. So I think he, we talked about it a little bit, and he might have had some other words. I just, it quite honestly, I just don't quite remember. But but uh, but I know he had that the track was his track, and um, and so I took it, wrote some lyrics to it, and then uh, came back to his house, and he, he was a very memorable cat to work with, just because he's he's. He's David Roth. <laughs> he's yeah. like one. He's he's one in a million. You know, he's just a oh, just a just an amazing guy, and he's super fun. But I just remember being. Uh, I just never, there's one thing he said to me when I came back with a lyric that I just never forget. Whereas because I really didn't know exactly, I wrote what I thought would be right for him. You know, I don't know how much of it I wrote. I think I had a lot of the hook and maybe the verses too. I, I quite honestly don't totally remember. Yeah, but I I was telling him about it in a kind of like not apologetic manner, but he thought he saw it as that, or I don't know, it's all relative, but I was sort of saying, hey, listen, you know, this is this thing I have, you know, if it's not cool, I'll, I'll rewrite it again, or I'll, I'll tweak it, or, you know, what have you, and he just, he looked at me at one point, he's just like, you know, because he just, he just didn't understand my kind of, you know, just trying to be really diplomatic, overly, overly diplomatic, perhaps, <laughs> I don't know, you know, it was just my personality type compared to his, which is a very sort of, he's got a large personality, no doubt, you know, and he looked at me, he goes, did your mother hit you as a child? <laughs> Never forget that. And we just started laughing. Up. I just started laughing. It was just such a classic line. He just has a line for everything. And, and he's, he's a great dude. So um, got, we finished that one up. And I wasn't there when he sang it. I, I think at that point, the next thing I did was I really enjoyed working with him. He was a great guy and he's super, super fun. And so I just went back and I'm like, you know, 
I want to come up with something that kind of reminds me of like what I just like my favorite, you know, David Lee Roth and Van Halen, that era, it just, just, just my take on it, you know? And so I started Little Ain't Enough without him. And I was working at the time I was, uh, I had access to a studio because I was signed to MCA Publishing. They had a studio. So mm -hmm. I went down with a band and I cut Little Ain't Enough, but it wasn't at that time. I just called it living in luxury. And I sang, I did the basic track, not the one that's on the record. He redid it, you know, obviously Bob Rock and did an amazing job, but, um, but so I did the basic track and then I put a scratch vocal where I was singing the melodies. And then I, but during that hook line, I would say living in luxury, which I think still ends up in the line, but that was my yeah. whole, my whole thing was the whole thing was called living in luxury. And then he, he took it and I said it to him. I can't remember if I heard back or if I, maybe he just goes, oh, that's great, man. You know, but you never know in those situations, like maybe he'll take it or maybe it won't make it. And I don't think I heard back from him for a while. And then he worked There's a couple of producers. I remember he worked with on the record, but I don't know. I think he ended up doing the whole record with Bob Rock. But I remember getting yes. a call from Bob Ezrin, who is another, you know, just like giant as far as, you know, producers. I mean, just just did amazing records with Pink Floyd. And you Kiss. On, and on, and yeah. on and on and on and on and on. It was just, you know, flabbergasted. You get a call. He's like, you know what? I'm working with David. We're thinking about cutting that song. And I was just, wow. I was thrilled because I always loved the song, but you don't have control over that, you know? And yeah. so then I didn't hear from them for quite a while. And Are you talking about months or weeks? Oh, I'm sure it was months. I'm sure it was months because the next thing I know, I think I heard from David that they did the album with Bob Rock and that, you know, it could be the first single or something, which was just mind blowing because it's just, I mean, it was exciting, you know, for obvious reasons. I was still doing the artist thing at that point where I was recording my own album. So it was really, I always enjoyed playing those two roles. I always thought that was really fun to have this kind of song out and then, you know, something totally what you wouldn't expect. And, uh, and it became the same, but they did the whole album with Bob Rock and he's another hero. I mean, that cat, yeah. just, the record's just so, they're so big. I just, when that record came out, I was just like, God dang, I was just like blown away how huge it was. And then Dave, he called me, I think we, we hung out a few times. Like, I think he invited me to a karaoke thing one night or something. It was so much fun. He's a great cat. You know, he's, he was just a really, just, he's, he, he's good people, man. You know, and he was just real supportive and, and, uh, just made that's that whole experience was a great one that's about all my so a lot of people that i speak with as a recovering music industry person that occasionally helps out a, a songwriter or two you'll find out when somebody writes for an album they they have two cuts on the album and they really wrote 15 songs for it in your case did you really go two for two on that album yeah well <laughs> yeah but you, you go also yeah you're right about that um um, I'm well, yeah, it, you, you never do know. You're right. Sometimes you're in there and you're in. I think I was sort of higher. That's why I said that kind of hired gun mentality, which is like always think, try to get the singles or, you know, and, and, and there is an element of luck. I mean, who are we trying to kid? There's, there's always luck in everything in life. There's an element of whether you call it luck or fate or what have you. But, um, but yeah, that was, I was happy about it. No doubt, you know, cause you're right. There are some things you write a whole lot of songs and only end up with a few, but that when you're a writer for a publisher, it is your job to try to write the singles. No one really wants the album cuts. Sometimes they end up being album cuts, but and in this day and age where it's like, as a songwriter, if you're work, if you're making your living writing on albums, you better have a single or you're probably not gonna make any, it's a different day. People don't really buy albums the way they did. And you know, you know the game. For sure.
So a lot of times another pattern is when an artist cuts your song, it's a hit, it's a single and all that. The next album they come calling because they go, hey, let's replicate that success. And then the other artist goes, I did that before. I'm not doing that again. I'm a creative artist. Did you get any correspondence or reach outs for the next album for your filthy little mouth in 94? I, I didn't. But I understand what you mean, because I remember after my first record, I, I had that kind of mentality, too. I'd work with a certain production team who were great, uh, Alex Sackin and Phil Thornley. But yeah, but when I did my next record. I, I just sort of wanted you just because, like you said, you, you've been there and you love that. And it's great for what it is. But you sort of feel like I want to try something new. Sometimes you go back. I mean, I never take it personal. It's not like that at all. It's just, um, yeah. Yeah, you get the call or, or you don't, but yeah. I mean, I don't know. No, I don't, yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I heard from him again, but I remember uh, hearing him on Howard Stern or something and Howard was you know, like, yeah, Robbie Nell, you know, that guy that just blah, blah, blah. And he was kind of, you know, doing his Howard Stern, making fun of me, which I love. I don't, I don't care. I don't take myself too seriously. And he's like, well, no, man, I met him and his wife. He's, he's cool, man. He's great. You know, it was really cool. I just, I've always had fond memories and, when I see him on TV, David Lee Roth, the thing that's so amazing about him, aside from the music, is just that he's, he's, I just can't believe how, how rapid fire he, he has some crazy, amazing line to say about everything. And I wonder sometimes, is he improving them or does he just have this endless supply of, you know, wonderful one, one-liners? I mean, he must know them. He must've worked them out. He's just, it never ends. And his energy is like he's burned so bright. It's a, he's an amazing guy. Yeah, that's for sure. I I always thought it was like a Henny like, Youngman. Like my Christmas cup. I don't know. I just noticed it's a Christmas. That's that's a cooler one than mine. Mine is from the Woody Guthrie Museum, but I guess it's cheaply made because the the lettering is washed <laughs> off. Uh, like be careful cup. with your coffee cup. I guess that's the lesson here. But but I figure that Dibley Roth, he's kind of basically a stand up comedian. The word was when he mm-hmm. started that he had an act similar to Ollie Joe Prater from the comedy store where mm. he would be, be doing one-liners between Van Halen songs and that rubbed people, some people the wrong way. And I see that there's not a big difference between say him and classic Rodney Dangerfield, classic Henny Youngman, et cetera. <laughs> it's a very borscht belt kind of thing. And the singing was secondary in a way to the personality per se. But the vibe I'm getting is that he was like that one-on-one as well. He was. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, he can turn it on to many different, you know, he can turn it up to 10 and, you know, it wasn't always like that, not, yeah. not that intense. But uh, another interesting thing I remember it just coming to me that he, that he said, which is, it makes sense, but but it's just interesting. We were just talking about vocal styles, and mm-hmm. I said, you know, and when I did my rough vocal, I was pretend, that's what I kind of try to do is try to channel and get into what I feel they would sing. And it's my, yeah. you know, version of it so it clearly is not the same thing but you know just the isms you know everybody's got their things that they do and he's got a million um mm-hmm. and, and uh and, and he goes you know what man ironically i always thought of myself as an r&b singer yes but that's what comes out and, and i just thought what a trip you know just like but i get it in a, in a in a weird way i get it it's just that but from his perspective it's all that's the fun part about music and how we kind of like, we're all, we all take from everything and then it, we kind of redo it and it comes out in our own, you know, you know, like when I did 
little in and up. I was what I thought he would, but he probably heard it and just like, well, I don't know about that. And he, and they, they flipped it. I mean, the original track was, was cool, but I mean, they, they definitely did a brilliant. Another thing that I'm curious about from the songwriter's perspective of, and, and career overall from what you do is outside collaborators, when they have one hit, they usually have other people sniffing around going, he did that for them then he could do that for me. Like somebody along the lines of say Jack Ponte or Desmond Child. It, yeah. it, that's not the kind of music they wanted to make because we know that Desmond Child came from the disco world. And that ultimately has very little to do with all the power ballads and things that he was writing in the late 80s, early 90s per se. In mm-hmm. your case, because you wrote A Little Ain't Enough or co-wrote it, you know, technicality, legal, legality sake right there, did you have other people sniffing around going, I want that for me? Well, I don't remember someone saying they want that because that was so in his kind of, you know, David Lee Roth meets Van Halen kind of genre. So I don't know that people wanted that. But I remember bumping into John Bon Jovi at, uh, at, his, at a recording studio. And he's like, man, that's so cool. I heard that you did that thing. And I had met him in Sweden doing some, we were doing some, some, he was, I think, on tour, but he also we do, doing some TV show and met him at, at the thing. And and uh, and he said, "Man, we, we got to get together." And he like we did a little co-write with him and Southside Johnny, and it was just. But it came as a result of that. So mm-hmm. he wasn't believe me. It wasn't like Southside Johnny wanted that at all. But it was just that idea that kind of like, I dig it. You 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 like a lot of music, and I do. I never really sort of thought of it as, you know, only this style or I just. I literally, it, still to this day, like on my iPod, it, you know, it's, it's very vast, including a lot of jazz too. I, I don't know. I, it's, it's all, you know, if it's done well, I'm, I love it. You know? So it sounds like, to recap what we were talking about before, when you get into the room with the person, you're just able to adapt to that personality or that genre, work on that, and then not take it personally if that's not what you're into. Because I find a lot of artists go, this is what I do, and they fight the process. No, I'm, I'm the opposite. I mean, you know, I also grew up being a, a lot of, one of the things I do is a lot of session guitar playing. And so when you're doing that, you sort of have to be able to jump genres. You know, it's not like, well, I only play rock or this and that. I mean, you sort of on some level, that's the fun of it. You want to be able to kind of do a little bit of, you know, something. But yeah, I just, it's not a question of taking it personal. I just, if someone called me to do some punk rock thing, you know, some really, you know, just that would be, I'd love it. But the difference I noticed some people that they sort of, they see it from a kind of like a, a place of emulation, like, oh, and, and they grab some aspect of the music and they think, oh, like for example, and nothing against any jazz cab, but it's like if some jazz player hits a, a jazz guitarist, hits a fuzz and he kind of goes, I play rock and you go, no <laughs> yes you're hitting a fuzz pedal yes it's a distorted sound you got to understand like where something's coming from so if i'm playing right. a part that's really really bonehead it's not just when i say bonehead i mean some just some just really really basic i should have said um cowboy chords or you're talking about basic one four five stuff, it could be, stuff if it's rocking it might be just, just yeah it might just be something that basic but the pocket and the feel you put it in that's what separate that's what tells you if a person kind of gets where that's coming from the feel the sound and just knowing where to and getting into the 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 just just the whole vibe of the music like i listen to zeppelin or, or i listen i was a huge hendrix fan and 
I think Zeppelin, I think it's funky. I mean, people think of Zeppelin's course. like listen to some of the groove and there were Bonham's laying it back. And I just, I see it all as sort of not as separate things. And if I'm in a style, I'm going to try to be true to what I think makes that style feel the way it does. Not just the kind of like, oh yes, they use a blah, blah, blah synth to do that. Yet it does. It's more, it's, that's not the. So you're not, a feel guy, not a gear yes. guy. Oh, not a what guy? Not a gear guy. Whole, uh, big time, yes. I definitely feel first. Yeah, I mean, abs, absolutely, absolutely. But but the era. I'm sorry to cut you off here. The era that you came up in, you had to know how to play. You could not fake it unless you were Sonny Bono per se. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so you came up when you had to play, and you cut your teeth before you had the publishing deal per se. Yeah. Did you? easily and comfortably embrace digital technology versus the analog and the tape? Well, I mean, when I first was first recording, there was, it was tape, you know? Um, it, I mean, I can't, I mean, it was, it was like, you know, 16 track, 24 track analog, you know, for the longest time. You even, did, yeah. Uh, even in my home studio, I used to have a you know, 24 track uh, analog. Um, I think it's all good. I think Quincy Jones, I think once wrote it's, you know, gear is a tool, uh, and and so it's it's really how you use it. And I remember doing a record one time with uh, with uh, George Michael's uh, engineer, guy named Chris Porter, who's amazing. And mm -hmm. he was working on it was a digital console. I think it was Sony Digital and or digital. It was just everything was so digital. I was really scared that it was going to sound, you know, sort of a little too slick or pristine or something about it. And it was actually one of the warmest records I'd ever worked on, just the way he made it sound. It's all relative. It's how you use what you have. I am a fan of, you know, when people analog, even nowadays, a lot of times like mastering engineers, they'll go through digital or they'll go through, uh, you know, analog processing to sort of get some of that back. And there's, it is, it is a great thing, but I'm not sort of one of these, oh, it's got to be this, or I've got to cut it on that. But, you know, you do hear some like a lot of rock cast like they'll cut their drums on analog and then they'll transfer it over to Pro Tools. It makes sense because the tape saturation is a different thing, but now they have plugins for God knows everything. Yeah, totally. So you've been so generous with talking about all this, what you're up to now at the moment, session work, writing for other artists still, any particular things you want to plug that you're working on right now? Um, you know, right now, this during, you know, this while well, we've all been sort of more in the house these last couple of years with COVID, um, or at least a year and a half or something, I've been, yeah. I, I finally decided to do another record on myself. So that was uh, fun, you know, and a lot of work because I sort of had to decide what it is that I wanted to do. And my, where I kind of like feel most natural as an artist is pop art and being the things I grew up with, whether it be mm -hmm. Earth, Wind and Fire or Michael Jackson or all, you know, that kind of, I just love all Quincy and and, and all, just those records to me. I, that's just there's a they're feel good records, you know. And to me, um, that was kind of the point of this record. So that's I guess what I'm going to plug. It's not done yet, but uh, but it will be soon. But that's been kind of where I'm putting most of my time. And then the most recent thing before that was the uh, I see red the ELAO stuff, which was this freak thing that got kind of big from a movie, a Netflix movie, three sixty five DNI, which which I haven't seen, but I, you know, but I, I was really happy to be just part of that ride in the band. Everybody loves now. I was, it was just, it's been really fun working on something that's so different from what I usually, that's the only thing is that sometimes 
for example, if you're doing a lot of stuff for Disney, and there were years that I did a lot of stuff for Disney, and I'm grateful. Yeah. My daughter, my daughter was 11 at the time, so it was really, it was something to share in a really kind of magical way. It was great, you know, just being part of that whole, uh, that whole thing. But then at a certain point, a lot of people know you for that, so you do start getting those. That's the kind of stuff that comes your way, and it's great, and there's nothing wrong with it. But I like a lot of different stuff, and that you know, like doing things like the icy red was really fun to just sort of this whole revenge song it was very sort of cathartic to break out of some of that but you know um and then working on i was really lucky to get the tmz doesn't really have a theme song per se the tv show but i ended up doing the what they call the sort of theme song oh that bumper that comes in and out of the commercials is yours yeah, yeah. i did not know that I, again, this echoes the thing I said at the beginning. Well, I should say, those... Using your point earlier, uh, co-written with my, my partner, Matthew Gerard. Yeah. Yes, and, and Matthew, <laughs> Matthew has one of my favorite cuts that he doesn't remember writing, I'm sure. There, uh -huh. there is this writer camp, if you don't mind a little sidebar of a story. I worked on the management team for this artist, Mike Doty. He was the singer of Soul Coughing. And, you know, they did really well. They fused kind of jazz and hip hop with a rock thing. So there were some big hits. He eventually goes solo. He's on Dave Matthews's label for a couple of records. And so Mike Doty has this demo of the song that Matthew co-wrote with Dan Wilson, the semi-sonic guy who's written Adele and everyone's songs and Nikki Six or Motley Crue. Wow. And I think it was called like Late Night at the Taco Bell. It's a, like a really bad song. But Mike <laughs> Doty heard the chorus and went, that's a hit. And the, the chorus was na na nothing. And he basically heard and went, this is a hit. Let's take out the part about Nikki Six rapping because Nikki Six actually raps the demo. I can send this to you oh if you want. And then Mike goes, this chorus is so strong. I'm going to turn it into a song. So we then had to negotiate the splits of going, well, oh. the song exists but we're only using the chorus. And yeah. I think it was like a 50% to the original writers and then 50% to him. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess that that yields the lesson of you're not always in the room. <laughs> it's true. That stuff does happen, but yeah. So, you know, doing those types of things, that's, those have been great, you know, just to those kind of things they they pay a lot of the bills, you know, and, and that kind yeah. of stuff. And, and, themes to a lot of the Disney shows and that kind of stuff, which is, you know, I've been very, very fortunate, you know, worked hard, but at the same time, very, very fortunate. And these days I just, I try to grab things and do work on things that they're fun. I mean, it's sort of a, you know, I love working. I think on some level I'll, I'll always do something just because it's, it's sort of the mind always wants to create something, but uh, I'm definitely pick and choose more, but those kind of situations where you have chances to write theme songs for TV shows, you sort of can't, turned down you never know which shows are going to go some never get picked yeah. up they have you but those are ones that you know i'm grateful for very grateful actually so it sounds like all is good in aside from the state of the world and <laughs> the pandemic yeah. and the liquor shortage that's now pressing in different parts of the u.s and wars and aside from that in the yeah. music business, you're doing fine yeah exactly <laughs> Well, yeah. thank you enough for not only your time but the years of great music and i do look forward to hearing that record of yours when it's actually done and ready for public consumption thanks yeah and i'll when i next talk to matt i'll 
bring up that song you mentioned. If if he does not have the demo on hand, let me know and I'll okay. And, and I think it's actually called Date from Hell or Date Night from Hell, something like that. <laughs> awesome, that's a great title. Love it. All right, man, thanks, <laughs> thanks, bro. thanks, Robbie. Have a great rest of the day. Take care. Thank you.